What companies deserve your hard-earned dollar? Which would you want to work for? How can you know if they share your values? Just ask us. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks who really means business in supporting workers, customers, communities, the environment, and shareholders. We measure progress, track success, and help them be better. When you see the Just Capital seal, you know what's real because just business is better business. Visit justcapital.com to learn who makes your dollar count. This is Wilmington's Morning News with Nick Craig. 606. Welcome in to a Tuesday edition of Wilmington's Morning News. Great to have you here this morning. Thanks for spending some time with us. 910-763-4000 is our phone number. That's where you can call or text and get your comments in on the airwaves. You can also email them, nick.craig at 980waav.com. We start off with an interesting story in downtown Wilmington after a pedestrian was struck by a vehicle. Now, that in itself, while it's not a common occurrence, it does happen. There's a lot of folks walking in and around downtown Wilmington, and from time to time, there are pedestrian versus vehicle accidents, so that's not super uncommon. What is uncommon here is where the charges are going. A pedestrian was struck by a vehicle near the Shell Station on North 3rd Street on Monday afternoon, according to the Wilmington Police Department. Per a police department spokesperson, the pedestrian received what appeared to be serious but non-critical injuries, and the charges are expected against the pedestrian in this case after they allegedly, quote, ran out in the traffic when they did not have a cross sign. So somebody's cruising down uh, North uh, 3rd Street or at the intersection of 3rd Street, and you've got somebody that just runs out in front of you. And in this case, the pedestrian is the one getting the charges. Now, we and we know that the injuries are serious but not critical. We are awaiting more information from WPD on that. I can't tell you the last time I've seen a story like that locally. I'm not sure I've ever seen one where a pedestrian has been charged in the case of a vehicle versus pedestrian accident. This happening yesterday afternoon here in downtown Wilmington. Well, a Brunswick County man has become the first in the state to ever be convicted of death by impaired boating. Now, this story goes way back to 2020. The North Carolina Wildlife Resource Commission announced that one of its investigations has led to the first death by impaired boating conviction in North Carolina history. Back in 2020, Matthew Frester of Brunswick County was driving a boat that involved in a triple fatal collision with another boat on the Waccamaw River. Three people were killed in the crash. Garrett Smith, who was 21, Jennifer Hayes, who was 37, and Megan Lynn, who was 21. Two others received minor injuries. Frester and the sole passenger on his boat were not injured. Now, according to the Wildlife Resource Commission in their announcement, they say Matthew Fesser of Brunswick County pled guilty to three counts of death by impaired boating, also known as Cheyenne's Law, on August the 28th. He was sentenced to nine and a half, 18 and a half, 
as well as six and a half years in prison for his role in the March 2022 boating accident that resulted in those deaths. Wildlife law enforcement captain Brandon Jones says the North Carolina wildlife the North Carolina wildlife law enforcement officers continue to provide a safe and enjoyable recreational boating experience to the boating public through both proactive law enforcement efforts and educational opportunities. The North Carolina Wildlife Resource Commission would like to thank each of the assisting agencies for their time and dedication during this investigation. Partnerships such as these allow for successful prosecution of crimes and justice for the victims. Sergeant Matt Chrisome with the North Carolina Wildlife Resource Commission led the investigation. Brunswick County District Attorney Investigator Eric Hackney and over 20 local, state, and law enforcement agencies assisted with the case, which spanned over three years. According to the... Um, According to the release, Cheyenne's law was passed in July of 2016 and it increased the penalty for impaired boating that results in death or serious injury from a misdemeanor, which it has always been in the past, to a felony. That law was named in the memory of Cheyenne Marshall, a 17-year-old from Concord who was killed by an impaired boater when she was kneeboarding on Lake Norman back in July of 2015. After learning that boating while impaired was only a Class II misdemeanor, Marshall's family lobbied the North Carolina General Assembly for stiffer penalties for impaired boating, and a year later that legislation was passed by the General Assembly. So there, are, there has been that increased risk on the book now for a couple of years, and we are now seeing the first time that it has ever uh, come forward and actually been levied against somebody. Uh, Matthew Fresser of Brunswick County, the first in the state to be convicted of death by impaired boating. He is going to be serving um, some lengthy, lengthy prison sentences uh, for all of this. He'll be spending the next nine and a half to 18 and a half years in prison for his role. A detrimental situation. His, his actions led to the death of three individuals. So that uh, being announced by the North Carolina Wildlife Resource Commission this week. Well, here is a very, very, very concerning headline from CBP. That's the Customs and Border Protection. They are now warning that terrorist groups, including the Iranian-backed Hamas groups, could easily be passing through the U.S.-Mexico border. The San Diego Field Office Intelligence Division of the Customs and Border Protection Agency has warned in a memo yesterday that members of terrorist groups, namely Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the PIJ, could be encountered at the porous southern border. This warning, of course, comes weeks after the Palestinian terrorist group, backed by Iran, I will note once again, killed more than 1,400 people in Israel and still to this morning has over 200 hostages. 
The Daily Caller's News Foundation first obtained and shared the October the 20th memo, which warned, quote, individuals inspired by or reacting to the current Israel-Hamas conflict may attempt to travel to or from the area of hostility in the Middle East via various transit areas across the southwest border. That would be coming through, you know, the U.S.-Mexico border. Foreign fighters motivated by ideological or mercenary soldiers of fortune may attempt to obfuscate travel to or from the U.S. or to or from countries in the Middle East through Mexico. The memo then provides patches of the three terrorist organizations and what they look like, Hamas, Hezbollah, and the PIJ, while listing off possible indicators. Those included military-aged males, military gear and signas, associations to Israel, the Palestinian terrorizers, or religious affiliations, as well as undetermined return plans. This should be absolutely terrifying to every single U.S. citizen. All right, this should cause an incredible amount. And, you know, and hey, let, me, let me be clear with this. My goal is not to provide news to you that has you running around in a panic attack all day. That's, that's not my intention here. But this should be a concern to every single U.S. citizen. Hell, every single person in America. No, you don't even need to be a U.S. citizen. We've seen the atrocities that these groups have carried out overseas and in the Middle East. These individuals have absolutely zero, and I mean zero, respect for human life. They will murder and slaughter anybody. And we've seen that. The elderly, women, babies, children, they don't care. You're not dealing with individuals that respect or have any sort of appreciation for human life. And now this warning coming from the San Diego field office of the Customs and Border Protection is an, should, should be incredibly alarming. Under President Joe Biden and his complete and total incompetence, the United States has already experienced a massive surge in illegal alien crossers who are on the terrorist watch list. This all happening over the last couple of years. And in just the last 12 months, the Department of Homeland Security, DHS, has encountered 149 illegal aliens at the nation's northern and southern borders who were revealed to be on the list of the federal government's terror watch list. Now, you might say, well, what's the issue here? They were stopped. Well, that's the problem. 149 were stopped. How many others were not apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border? How many other individuals on the terror watch list are what they call gotaways? Individuals that are not stopped are able to sneak through the U.S.-Mexico border and get into the country illegally without ever being apprehended, without ever providing any documents or information to the United States. How many terrorists did that? That is the concerning figure. That is the concerning number. And unfortunately, we have no clue. The number could be zero. 
The number could be 10. The number could be 100. The number could be 1,000. We have absolutely no idea. The vast majority of the border crossers on the terror watch list, 146 of them, were encountered at the U.S. southern border. That reflects a 7,350% increase in such encounters compared to the fiscal year 2017. Of course, in 2017, you had, for, you had President Donald J. Trump in the White House and a strong U.S.-Mexico border. A 7,350% increase. I'll try, try that on for size this morning. And you're going to tell me that Joe Biden is doing a good job. He's going to tell you, he's going to bring out Alejandro Mayorkas and tell you that the border is under control or bring out his uh, uh, swiftly incompetent vice president Kamala Harris to uh, cackle and laugh about the U.S.-Mexico border. It's under control. 7,350% increase. Wow. Pretty concerning stuff, and that's not the only concerning information. I've got some pretty staggering figures about how many migrants have come into the United States in the last 12 months. I'll provide that information coming up for you after 7 o'clock this morning right here on Wilmington's Morning News. We'll take a look at what is looking to be a very nice and warm Tuesday forecast coming up. Plus, we'll take our turn back up to Washington, D.C., let you know the latest of uh, what is going on for the battle for the next Speaker of the United States House of Representatives after this. It's Nick Craig in Wilmington's Morning News on 107.9 and 980 The Wave. It's 623. Good Tuesday to you. Welcome back to Wilmington's Morning News. 910-763-4000 is our phone number. It is a chilly start to the day this morning. 43 degrees out at the Wilmington International Airport, according to uh, Gannon Medwick at WECT News this morning. That 43 is the coolest start to the day we've had so far this fall season. However, temperatures are going to rebound. We're going to be in the mid-70s today. It's going to be nice and warm, dry sunny a a nice late october day here across southeastern north carolina turning our attention to washington dc this morning it has now been three full weeks 21 days since kevin mccarthy was ousted as the speaker of the united states house of representatives and house republicans are set to hold a third internal vote today to find their speaker candidate there will likely be uh, several rounds of voting and individuals uh, getting a lot of split ticket votes today. House Republicans are ramping up for that vote. GOP lawmakers will be gathering behind closed doors at 9 o'clock this morning for an election via anonymous secret ballot. There are nine Republicans that are uh, right now fighting and vying for that seat. Some of them you've probably heard of, others you probably have not. Majority Whip Tom Emmer from Minnesota is seemingly the frontrunner in this race. GOP Conference Vice Chair Mike Johnson, the Republican from Louisiana. GOP Policy Committee Chair Gary Palmer from Alabama. Republican Study Committee Chair Kevin Hearn from Oklahoma. Representative Byron Donalds from Florida. He's a uh, second-term member of the House. He's pretty, pretty new up there. Representative uh, Jack Burgum, the Republican from Michigan. 
Representative Austin Scott from Georgia, Representative Pete Sessions from Texas, and Representative Dan Mauser from Pennsylvania. Those are the nine individuals that are vying for that right now. You'll notice a lot of names not on that list, including Patrick McHenry, Kevin McCarthy is not on that list, Steve Scalise, Jim Jordan, all of them, the heavy hitters, the more uh, front-running candidates as we believed in the past, are off that list. The vote comes after candidates made their pitches to the GOP conference on a Monday night candidate form. Those GOP members had the opportunity to go forward and pitch themselves why they believe they are the frontrunners. That frontrunner does now appear to be uh, Tom Emmer, who has been endorsed by ex-speaker Kevin McCarthy. Other candidates going into the election with several endorsements include uh, Kevin Hearn, uh, Burgum, and Byron Donalds from Florida. And it is likely to take several rounds of voting today. A candidate must win a conference majority to be named the speaker designee under current House GOP rules. So they're gonna ha- somebody's going to have to separate themselves from the pack here. If no candidate manages to win a majority during a given round, the person with the least amount of votes is withdrawn from the race and another round is held. So this just goes on and on and on and on with nine candidates. The election comes three full weeks, 21 days after Kevin McCarthy was ousted from his job as House Speaker. The first time in the history of the House of Representatives and individuals like Matt Gates, who thought this was such a slam dunk idea, looking, com- I mean, they've already looked completely foolish. I mean, this is a this is a guy that has done very little in the House of Representatives and now uh, all of this uh, falls at his feet. It was his uh, great idea that caused this and set this ball in motion. And we've heard very little from him since. I mentioned this yesterday. This is a guy who was all over cable news networks and all over you know, CNN and ABC and CBS weeks talking about how he's going to throw McCarthy out of his job. He's been completely silent since. I guess the reality of uh, his actions has finally caught up with him. Last week, House Republicans selected Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan as their speaker, but after three full votes on the House and losing as many as 25 members of his own delegation, that being the Republican Party, well, he has been uh, kicked out of that uh, House The House GOP conference decided that they did not want Jim Jordan to move forward. Before that, for a couple of days, it was Majority Leader Steve Scalise that had the um, nod and was able to secure the majority of the votes. He seemingly did not have a viable pathway either. And this is the interesting thing. This is the interesting thing now. Out of those nine names I just read, I don't know that any of them has a viable path to 217. I'm not sure that a single one of them can get 217 votes. And Because what you're seeing right now is a GOP at the national level. Again, differentiating it from, from your local Republican Party, even your state Republican Party. At the national level, you have got a GOP, a Republican Party, that is more interested in petty politics a party that is more interested in their own agendas and egos than the than getting things done and being successful. That's where you are right now. 
this party with everything going on right now has a slam dunk opportunity to make change and win over the hearts and minds of the American people. And they're just fumbling the ball. Afford Anything is a podcast that teaches you how to be smart with your money. As a small business, you don't have the resources to pay the level of overhead and for the level of services that a Fortune 500 company could afford. So I certainly understand why, if you want to offer benefits, the providers of that, that that fee is going to be higher because there's more account management per employee. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. 636. Welcome back to Wilmington's Morning News. You can text or call, get your comments in on the air this morning at 910-763-4000. That's 910-763-4000. Well, as we continue to watch the ongoings in the Middle East, I saw this uh, video last night on social media. I put it out on my uh, X account. You can follow me over there at Nicholas M. Craig. Uh, We as 107.9 and 980 The Wave are also on X. You can give us a follow over there we are at 980 the wave 980 the waav on x as well it's a, a video it was posted by andy no on um twitter or x last night and it's a video from october the 22nd so that would have been sunday in illinois there was a solidarity with israel rally that uh, was taking place in illinois there was one of these up in uh, raleigh on the sunday as well there was a lot of these all across the united states Unfortunately, I can't play the audio for you on air because it's full of expletives, but it is a a video of a man who was in this uh, solidarity with Israel rally who was beaten by a group of Palestine and or Hamas supporters. I mean, they corner him, they strip him away from the group that he's in, they corner him, they push him into some sort of uh, like bush tree area and just start beating him, right? Because this is the left. They're punching him, they're, they're hitting him with flagpoles and other instruments. I mean, they're just beating the living crap out of this guy, right? Because this is the Democrat party of peace. This is what the Democrats stand for, ladies and gentlemen. This is what they support. So a question was asked yesterday at the illustrious White House press briefing about the rise of anti-Semitism, which you can put exclusively at the hands of the modern Democrat Party. Listen to the word salad here from Corinne Jean-Pierre. Again, this is her party that is doing these, right? The group of Palestine and Hamas supporters that are roaming around the streets beating up uh, either either people that are Jewish or just individuals that are supporting Israel, they're not Republicans. They're not card-carrying conservatives. They're far-left progressive Democrats led on by the likes of people like Rashida Tlaib and the squad. So listen to this word salad. What is Biden's level of concern right now about a potential rise of anti-Semitism? It's a pretty good question. It's an, a terrible answer from Corinne Jean-Pierre. What is his level of concern right now about the potential rise of anti-Semitism in light of everything that's going on in Israel? So a couple of things. Um, look, um, uh, we have not seen... Uh, any credible uh, threats. I know there's been always questions about uh, credible threats. 
We haven't seen any credible threats. Well, have you seen these videos on social media of Jews getting beaten by pro-Palestine and pro-Hamas supporters? Have you seen those? Now, I guess you have. You, I guess you haven't seen those groups of people chanting "death to Israel." I guess, I guess you guys missed on that. Missed that part. Okay. Uh, and so, uh, just want to make sure that that's out there. But look, uh, Muslim and those perceived uh, to be Muslim have endured a disproportionate uh, number of hate-fueled attacks, and certainly President Biden understands that many of our Muslim Arab. Arab Americans and Palestinian American loved ones and neighbors are worried about the hate being directed at their communities. And that is something you heard the president speak to in his uh, in his address uh, just last last Thursday. And so uh, one of the things that the president has done is directed his team, uh, uh, Homeland Security team, to prioritize prevention uh, and disruption of any emerging threats that could harm the Jewish, the Muslim, uh, Arab Americans, or, or any other communities. And that is something that the president has sought to do and and since day one, as you know, the president ran on on um, on you know bringing commu- protecting communities, obviously, but bringing people together, the soul uh, uh, protecting the soul of the nation. And so um, that is something that the president takes very very seriously. Uh, and um, you know, we're going to continue to denounce any sort of hate. <laughs> so again, the question was, what is Biden's level of concern right now about a potential rise of anti-Semitism? We haven't heard of any. However, Muslims and those perceived to be Muslims have endured a disproportionate number of hate-fueled attacks. So this, this to me is a very interesting paradox. Maybe that's the word I'll use for it. I, uh, I've had this, uh, I've, been, I've been toying around in my head with this for the last couple of weeks, and I think I'm, I think I'm finally ready to, to talk about it now. When you look at voting blocks and you look at where individuals are most likely to vote, one of the most consistent voting groups for the Democrat Party is actually Jewish Americans. They are one of the most consistent Democrat voting blocks in the country. I've got a, a, a Pew Research study here in, in front of me that was conducted back in 2021. And it shows that it, over a vast majority of Jewish Americans, those surveyed by the Pew Research Organization, which I think we could all say they do a pretty good job with what they're doing. Seven and ten. Of the Jewish people in this survey, 7 seven out of 10 Jews, identified or leaned towards the Democrat Party. That included 68% of Jews by religion and, 70%, and 77% of Jews with, by, that are not actively like participating in, not actively participating in their faith, but they're still Jewish. Just 26% of U.S. Jews overall identify with the Republican Party or lean towards the GOP. So 75 going towards the Democrats, 25 going towards the Republicans. Let's just use those numbers. 75, 25. I 
I've always wondered for for as long as I've been in politics and and, and following this stuff and and, and kind of looking at various voting blocks because I this I'm a political nerd. This is the stuff I enjoy looking at. <laughs> this is the stuff I enjoy reading when I'm not here on the air. It's always been fascinating to me that there's such a large propensity of Jewish individuals that are lock and step with the Democrat Party. And I just wonder right now with what's going on with the complete and total failure of the Democrat Party to call out the left wing of their group, their far left progressives, the Rashida Tlaibs and the others that are so anti-Israel, so anti-Jew. I wonder if this is going to change the perspective of this voting block. Because overall, this group continues to remain largely democratic and largely liberal. And, and it's a very, it, it, it's got to be a very interesting dynamic going forward. I think it's something that I haven't heard anybody else talk about. It's something that I haven't seen written about anywhere. But I do genuinely believe that the actions, even this comment from the White House press secretary yesterday, if it is not going to push this voting block in the other direction, because here's the reality. This is a the, the current Democrat Party does is not pro-Israel. They're not. They're pro-Palestine. You're seeing the protests all over the United States. They're taking place here in North Carolina. You had a massive protest a week and a half ago up at Chapel Hill. A group of individuals yelling and screaming about Israel and promoting and supporting Palestine and Hamas. So at what point do these Jewish Americans, those voting in the United States, at what point does this group say, hmm, maybe we're supporting the wrong people? Maybe we're backing a political party that does not have the same values that we do. We're backing a political party that is supporting a group of individuals that slaughtered 1,400 people in our, not every single Jewish person is from Israel, of course. But is supporting a group of individuals that slaughtered 1,400 people in Israel, many or most of them Jewish. Is this the election where that happens? I've got an interesting story over at the New York Post. You've got a the Jewish Americans who... Again, 75% of them break towards the Democrat Party. Traditionally, it's a group of individuals that is not very pro-Second Amendment, not very pro-gun. Well, the Jewish Americans, here's the headline over at the New York Post from yesterday. Jewish Americans are flocking to learn gun safety and buy firearms amid war in Israel. 
a growing number of American Jews are taking course on f- courses on firearm safety and going to shooting ranges around the country as they fear for their safety following the Hamas attack on Israel. Most Jewish customers have been buying guns amid the rise of anti-Semitism, which according to the White House isn't happening. But they're buying these on the rise of anti-Semitism following Hamas's attack on Israel. That's according to David Kowalski, who owns a Florida gun store in Hollywood, Florida. He told NBC News, we've definitely seen a tremendous increase in religious Jewish and Orthodox individuals purchasing firearms. And I've seen a surge in individual trainings as well as group trainings. This is a group of people, again, as a voting block, not every single one, of course, but as a voting block, is falling for the Democrat Party, upwards of 75%. And now now they're same people. The party that they're supporting are flying Palestinian flags in the U.S. House of Representatives outside of their office. That's Rashida Tlaib. I have a strong suspicion that this war could lead to the at least could put a large dent in a this group that has been a solid solid electoral group for the Democrat party. And now based on Karine Jean-Pierre's comments yesterday, you've got Democrats that are now slamming the White House press secretary. I'll get to some of those comments coming up after this. If you'd like to chime in on the program, you can do so at 910-763-4000. It's Nick Craig and Wilmington's Morning News on 107.9 and 980 The Wave. Welcome back to Wilmington's Morning News. 910-763-4000 is our phone number. We are discussing a pretty interesting thing this morning. As you had a question yesterday at the White House press briefing, it was a question of Kareen Jean-Pierre about how, what is Biden, that would be our president for, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, what is his level of concern about the potential rise of anti-Semitism? His level of concern right now about the potential rise of anti-Semitism in light of everything that's going on in Israel. So a couple of things. Um, look, um, uh, we have not seen uh, any credible uh, threats. I know there's been always questions about uh, credible threats. Uh, and so... It's not happening, according to the administration. Now, that's uh, very different from what uh, Jewish Americans are concerned about because they're going out and buying firearms like uh, nobody else. And that answer has prompted now Democrats to start slamming the administration. Democratic Florida Representative Jared McCloskey slammed White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre yesterday for her downplaying of anti-Semitic hate crimes as the war in the Middle East continues to rage. He put a post out on social media. He is Jewish. He says, what a weak answer. And why are you looking in the book? What is the, are you looking for what is the approved answer? He continued by saying, the simple answer is yes. You are concerned about the rise of anti-Semitism. Of course, we are also worried about the hatred against Muslim Americans. We must do better. So that caused Karine Jean-Pierre to then tweet out after this press briefing because she had to clarify her ridiculously stupid comment 
saying, quote, to be clear, the president and our team are very concerned about the rise in anti-Semitism, especially after the horrific Hamas terror attacks on Israel. She tweeted that. But but that's not what but that's not what she said. She said, we've seen no credible threat. So I guess she didn't see the video that was posted over the weekend of a group of uh, a group of individuals that were in Illinois supporting Israel who were attacked by a group of leftist thugs and mob individuals uh, who beat them up with their Palestinian, literally beating somebody with a Palestinian flagpole. I mean, that's, that's literally, I'm, I'm watching the video right now. I put it out on my X profile last night at Nicholas M. Craig. So I guess that, that's not a concern for her. That's not a problem for her. Not a concern for her. So it goes, it, it, it kind of, it, it dovetails into the previous conversation. Again, this is a, the, the traditional Jewish voting block in this country has skewed very, very left. They have skewed nearly 75% Democrat over Republican. And I just wonder if what you're seeing now from the modern left-wing party in America led by the likes of Rashida Tlaib, AOC, and other members of the squad that are very anti-Israel, very anti-Jew, and seemingly pro-Hamas and pro-Palestine, I wonder if this is going to affect that voting block. We're not going to know. At least we're not going to know right now. Might learn a little bit more about that in 2024. But it's very interesting. 910-763-4000 is our phone number. Let's jump on over to our phone lines. Caller, good morning. You're on the air. Go ahead. Good morning. Um, There's a little term called controlling words, controlling minds. Sure. A couple points. A couple points. Uh, Jews technically are Palestinians because Palestine's a region. Sure. Until recently. Until recently, they're starting to say they're kind of like a state. They never were. Second of all, if um, if you look at Jordan, Jordan took half of what was traditionally Palestine, the mm-hmm. area, back in the back in the way they were created from, you know, all the all the mess from the English and stuff. So and even back in the seventies, the the quote Palestinians attacked Jordan to basically try to get some of their land back. And Jordan beat them down. So the Palestinians are put when well, I'm I'm using that in quotes, are put in this place on purpose. Nobody wants them. Uh, for whatever reason, I don't know, but one of them is probably political. Leave them right there. Whereas in the Jewish state has brought in Jews from all over the world and put them in. Now, they're not perfect. Don't get me wrong. They're not perfect. But there's no, no, no such thing as a non-bloody border, first of all. And, you know, this, this whole thing, they were offered a state. And now the problem is they voted Gaza. These, um, uh, what do you call it? They voted for Hamas. Hamas. I mean, they, they, they voted right. so, for Hamas. So it's not like um, you got Hezbollah. Okay, there might be a bunch of radicals. You know, maybe the people agree with them, but they're not the government. Now you got the government of quote the Palestinian state attacking the Jews. It's a whole different animal now, and you know. But again, they, the terms they used on purpose, Palestinians, la di da di da. I call Jews Palestinians when they go, "No, what are you talking about?" 
Hostile to the area, baby. It is. That's what it is. There, there's no argument there. In the case of what it, what you're seeing now with these individuals saying, you know, oh, we're pro-Palestine, that, they're not, of course, talking about Israel. You make a great point. I appreciate your call this morning. That's not the point that they're making. These people are pro – these two people, for all intents and purposes, are pro-Hamas. And they've made that blatantly clear with their words and their actions. More Wilmington's Morning News coming up. Every week, Michael Rosenbaum is getting deep with someone new on the Inside of You podcast. Let's get inside of Shelly Hennig. So Obliterated's on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I had the best time. And it was great. challenging, but it was like the show. It doesn't always happen. Everybody's trying to make a show and you're this not. This was a it's dream. It's no fun. Genuinely. That's and if it beautiful. wasn't, I would just keep my mouth shut and talk about something else. Like, yeah, it like was, hey, it was fine. Because yes. I've done that. I've asked people and they're like, you know. Yeah. Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Wherever you listen. Waking you up to Cape Fear's breaking news, weather, and traffic. This is Wilmington's Morning News with Nick Craig, 107.9 and 980 The Wave. 7.06. Welcome in to a Tuesday edition of Wilmington's Morning News. Great to have you alongside this morning. 910-763-4000 is our studio hotline where you can call or text and get your comments in on the airwaves this morning. A very concerning headline coming out from the San Diego office of the Customs and Border Protection, CBP. The Field Intelligence Office in San Diego, California, has warned in a memo that members of terrorist groups, namely Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group, the PIJ, could be encountered at the very poorest wide open Swiss cheese looking southern border that we have now as you can imagine in the memo they didn't call it Swiss cheese or a porous or a broken but uh that's exactly what it is this warning is of course coming on the heels of the unsettled nature ongoing the war raging in the Middle East right now as Hamas back on October the 7th had paragliders and other folks going into Israel slaughtering over 1400 individuals there are exp- still expected as many as 200 or so hostages being held in parts of the Gaza Strip this morning by the Hamas Iranian-backed terror group. The Daily Caller News Foundation first obtained and shared the memo, which was dated October the 20th, which warned, quote, individuals inspired by or reacting to current Israel-Hamas conflict may attempt to travel to or from the area of hostility in the Middle East via various transit routes across the southwest border, putting specific interest there on the U.S.-Mexico border. The memo continues by saying foreign fighters motivated by by ideology or mercenary soldiers may attempt to obfuscate travel to or from the U.S. or to or from countries in the Middle East through Mexico. And this has been, you know, the discussion the entire time. When you talk about the U.S.-Mexico border. You're not talking about a bunch of individuals from Mexico coming across the border. You've got individuals from like, what, 125 or 145 countries that have been apprehended by Customs and Border Protection. 
I mean, you've got people from lit- literally, and I don't use that word very often because everything, you know, literally this, literally that. No, you have people from literally all across the world coming into the United States illegally through the U.S.-Mexico border. It continues to be a serious problem. It has been a serious problem. It's been something that talk radio and, you know, if you watch Fox or Newsmax or OAN, it's been something that we've been talking about for years now. The abject failure of the Biden administration to keep our southern border secure. And now with Republicans and the mess that they've created in the House of Representatives, they can't, of course, do anything about it. They're over there, you know, playing, uh, playing with uh, checkers while the whole uh, world is coming to an end. We've got a, complete, a completely open southern border. It's just a joke. The memo then provided patches of the three terrorist organizations, Hamas, Hezbollah, and the PIJ, while listing possible indicators. Those include military-aged males, military gear insignias, associations to Israel, the Palestinian terror group, or religious affiliations, as well as individuals that do not have determined return plans. Under President Joe Biden, the United States has already seen a massive surge in illegal alien crossers who are on the terrorist watch list. And this, again, is not a new story. This is something that has been discussed in great detail. It's not been something that's been discussed in great detail by the president. Hasn't been discussed in great detail by the border czar in Kamala Harris. Hasn't been discussed in great detail by Karine Jean-Pierre or Alejandro Mayorkas. But if you, unless you've just wanted to bury your head in the sand on this issue and just completely ignore it, it's been something that's been talked about. Over the last year, last year, The Department of Homeland Security, DHS, under the control of Alejandro Mayorkas, who needs to lose his job, they have encountered 149 illegal aliens at the nation's northern and southern borders who were revealed to be on the federal government's terrorist watch list. 149 individuals have been apprehended by Customs and Border Protection that are on the terrorist watch list. That should send chills down your spine. Because 149 have been apprehended and have been encountered by Customs and Border Protection, how many have not? How many individuals that are on the terror watch list that were able to squeak through the border without being apprehended, how many of them are in the United States right now? Now, I'll admit, that number could be zero. That number could be 10. That number could be 100. That number could be 500. And there is no way for us to tell. There is no way for us to know who these individuals are, where these individuals are, or God forbid what they're planning. This situation with the border, again, it's not new. 
this really is going to be the black eye of the Biden administration. I really do believe that. Because we have opened ourselves and put ourselves in a very dangerous and I'll admit scary situation. All of this was completely avoidable. All of this could have been averted. Could have been counteracted. Could have been stopped. But you've got the president, his administration, the people he's surrounded himself with that do not think that this is a serious issue. So I guess I'll ask the question to you. Do you think it's a serious problem that 149 illegal aliens on the federal government's terrorist watch list have been stopped by Customs and Border Protection over the last year? I'll ask you the question. 910-763-4000 is our phone number. The vast majority of the border crossers on the terrorist watch list, 146 of the 149, were encountered at the southern border. That reflects a 7,350% increase in such encounters compared to the fiscal year 2017. An over 7,000% increase. A report from the House Homeland Security Committee, which is chaired by Representative Mark Green, the Republican from Tennessee, further details this, noting that Border Patrol apprehended just 14 individuals' names who were on the terror watch list, with most of them attempting to enter through the southwest border between 2017 and 2020. Just 14 In a three-year span. And in just the last 12 months, there's been nearly 150. What's the difference between 2017 and 2020 and where we are right now? Well, I think the answer is pretty clear. You've got a weak, useless, feckless leader in Joe Biden that doesn't stand for anything isn't serious about anything and has given the green light to individuals from literally across the entire world to come to the United States without following the legal process. That's what's going on here. Senator Josh Hawley, the Republican from Missouri, is demanding President Joe Biden's Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas disclose the number of special interest aliens released into the United States. Such illegal aliens are described as non-U.S. persons who, based on analysis of travel patterns, potentially pose a national security risk to the United States or its interests. As you can imagine, that number has not been released. And there's a, I'm, I'm sure you can gather, you can put the two pieces together, why that information hasn't been made available. Because it would be so unbelievably damning to the Democrats and to Joe Biden. In Holly's letter, he writes, I write with alarm regarding the uptick in potential terrorist-linked illegal aliens encountered at the southern border. 
This development follows the barbaric attack perpetrated by Hamas terrorists on innocent American and Israeli citizens. It is imperative that you address the issue immediately to ensure the safety of American citizens, especially Jewish Americans who are facing increased threats to their physical safety following the Hamas attack. Howley, Josh Howley, also has asked Mayorkas to describe what steps the department has taken to, quote, heighten security standards at the southern border following Hamas's attack on Israel. And uh, as you can imagine, with that as well, he hasn't heard anything back. This should be really, really concerning to you. My goal, my intention is not to fear monger. My goal is not to uh, give you anxiety or make you feel uneasy or unsafe. My goal is to pass along this information to you. Because it is a real serious concern. You have got individuals that identify with one of, just, just one of these three groups. These are the three ones we're talking about right now. Hezbollah, Hamas, and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group, the PIJ, that have no respect no appreciation for human life, have proven that, and they're potentially now in the United States of America. And mum is the word from Joe Biden. Mum is the word from Alejandro Mayorkas. Your thoughts on the U.S.-Mexico border, the lack of action from the Biden administration, or maybe you're somebody that thinks he's doing a good job, like the White House press secretary continues to say. You can be part of the program this morning at 910-763-4000. It's Nick Craig in Wilmington's Morning News. Welcome back to Wilmington's Morning News. You can be part of the program this morning at 910-763-4000. Talking about the administration's failure down at the U.S.-Mexico border an alert coming out from Customs and Border Protection, their San Diego field office, that there is an increased risk that members of Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group, the PIJ, could be encountered at the southern border. That's an increased warning that was uh, gotten by the Daily Caller. They're the ones that exclusively reported that yesterday. They're the ones that got the copy of that memo. And this is just another chapter in the saga of the failure of the Biden administration to take our border seriously. This is not a new thing, unfortunately. This is not a first-time conversation for us. This is not something that you, as the listener, are unaware of. That We have talked about the failure of this administration to secure our border for years now. And now what you've got, you know, unrest ongoing in the Middle East and individuals that, you know, are in the Iranian uh, parliament were chanting death to Israel, death to America on October the 7th as a um, Iranian-backed Hamas terrorist group slaughtered 1,400 people in Israel. Right, you've got these individuals now potentially trying to come into the United States. Death to Israel, death to America. It's a very serious issue. Steve is texting in this morning at 910-763-4000. He says, I still can't believe that the mainstream media continues to ignore the ongoings on the southern border. Well, Steve, you know, 
I unfo- I agree with you, but I can believe it. I can absolutely believe that they're ignoring it. Because I, as I mentioned before the break, I think when you, when we get closer and closer to 2024 and we start having serious discussions about the future of the country for the next presidential election, I think the border and border security is going to be an even more important issue than it has been in the past. Because while the media has ignored a lot of what's going on, they've had to, they have been, and believe me, I'm not giving them credit for it, but they have covered little bits and pieces here and there. We played audio clips from CNN, from ABC News, and from CBS in recent months where they have kind of dabbled into the border a little bit because they don't have a choice. It's becoming such a big story that they can't ignore it. Now, what they're not reporting is this other headline that I've got for you here. President Joe Biden has welcomed at least one economic migrant into the United States during the last 12 months for every American newborn or high school graduate. Now, what is an economic migrant? Those are individuals that are coming to the United States, not because of political persecution, not because of anything else. They are coming here for economic, you know, uh, hold. They're coming here for economic reasons. They're coming here to work. They're coming here to make money. They're coming here for those various reasons, for opportunity. They're not being politically persecuted, none of that. That's why they're called economic migrants. More than 4 million economic migrants have crossed the southern border during the government's October to September budget year, according to data released by the federal government on October the 21st. In contrast, 3.67 million Americans were born during that same matching 12-month period in 2022, according to the Census Bureau. The 2022 number indicates that at least 400,000 births of that 3.67 to illegal migrants. The inflow also creates vast economic competition for the 3 million American youths who graduated from high school in, in the 10 months up to October of 2022, according to the Bureau. So there's been, is, there's been more individuals that have come into the United States for economic relief, which is not a traditional pathway to getting into the country. But more of those individuals have come into the United States in the last in the, the calendar year, which is October through September, than were either born or until or as many that have graduated from high school. Is that not a concerning number to you does that not raise some sort of red flag in your head it should you would assume that this would be a topic of conversation every single day on every single media outlet in every single newspaper across the united states all of this stuff but it's not you get little trickles of information here and there but it's not vastly or widely reported. I didn't see any news stories this weekend about this report released 
over the weekend on the 21st. Nope. Continues to fly under the radar because we know, and the media knows, how bad it makes the Biden administration look. More Wilmington's Morning News coming up right after this. Movies, TV shows, books, podcasts, and more. It's what women binge with Melissa Joan Hart and her friend Amanda Lee. We have Lauren Bosworth with us. Yay! the hills so what is like your number one question from fans the primary question i still get asked was what is it real (laughs) (laughs) in 2024 to me is a surprising question to get because i feel like everybody has been through the reality tv gauntlet at this point what women binge wherever you listen Welcome back to Wilmington's Morning News. You can text your call. Get your comments in on the airwaves this morning. 910-763-4000 is our studio hotline where you can do that. Well, I caught an interesting tweet last night from Attorney General Josh Stein. He is also happens to be a candidate for governor here in the United uh, here in North Carolina. He is the current Democrat attorney general, and he is the uh, Democratic frontrunner to be the next governor of the state. It actually worked out perfectly. I had a story yesterday I didn't have a chance to get into. But here was Josh Stein's tweet. Right wing extremists in North Carolina, like my Republican opponent, can only presume he's talking about Mark Robinson, are pushing for a total for a total ban on abortion. That means no exceptions, not even in the cases of rape or incest or the life or health of the mother. As governor, I'll fight back against these attacks. Now, before we get into anything else, the whole premise of Josh Stein's tweet is ridiculous. And I, and I noted just as such, Republicans did not push for a total ban on abortion. That is not what the General Assembly passed this session. They passed a 13-week restriction with exceptions. But see, facts are really hard and facts really just don't matter. It's all about continuing to push political agendas. And that's exactly what Josh Stein is doing. And this uh, piggybacks perfectly on a story I've got from the News and Observer. This ran on in their Sunday edition of the illustrious Raleigh NNO. And here's the headline. Now, I'll note before we get into this story, this is not an op-ed. Now there are two. There are a couple of different kinds of uh, you know news articles and stories. There's op-eds and an op-ed. It's an it's an opinion piece. That's why it's called an op-ed. And then there, of course, are regular news pieces that are written by reporters. And in this case, this article is co-authored by two individuals. Both of them are reporters for the News and Observer. So this is not an op-ed. That's going to be important as we get through the stories, as as we get through the story here. North Carolina's newly passed state budget includes nearly $26 million in funding for religious organizations, ranging from direct grants to individual churches to funds for anti-abortion crisis pregnancy centers. So now pro-life is anti-abortion. I don't know that there are pregnancy centers that are advertising themselves as anti-abortion. That's not the phrase. That's not the term that's used. Pro-life is the term. Pro-life is the phrase. 
But as we are not even one full sentence into this article, you can already see where it's going. Among the top recipients are groups that have come under scrutiny in the past for inappropriately using federal funds and allegedly, not factually, but allegedly providing pregnant women with misleading information about abortions. Allegedly. Gotcha. Republicans who have a supermajority in both chambers of the legislature have enacted far-reaching conservative policies this session, overriding Democrat Governor Roy Cooper's vetoes a whopping 19 times. The budget itself is an example of the GOP's power as top leaders secured earmarks in their districts and groups supporting Republican priorities received hefty grants. Folks, this is written as a news article. I'm a pretty opinionated guy, in case you haven't been able to uh, gather that in our uh, time together. I would not even write something like this. I mean, this is so blatantly political. This is so blatantly phrased and casts a light in a way to demonize Republicans, it's unbelievable. They've enacted far-reaching conservative policies this session. Like what? What is the definition of a far-reaching conservative policy? If it's far-reaching, it might be illegal. So maybe somebody should sue over it. Oh, wait, they're not. They're just far-reaching because it's not what the Democrat Party would have wanted wanted to do. They're far-reaching because it doesn't continue to push the liberal Democrat narrative down the court. This is, I'm not really surprised. We've covered a lot of really blatantly dishonest and disingenuous news and observer articles over the last couple of years. This one is pretty high on the top of the list. This one's pretty high up there. So who do they interview for uh, this uh, story over at the illustrious Raleigh News and Observer? Well, they interview Jennifer Copeland, who is the executive director of the North Carolina Council of Churches. And she's questioning why Christian groups with conservative ideologies were funded, while groups like hers, which support progressive causes, were not. And on face value, that might seem like a valid question. But see, even in the first sentence of this article, it completely negates the narrative that Democrats like Josh Stein and others have been yelling and screaming about for the last couple of months. The claim in the article is that you know the Republicans are passing these ridiculous policies, these far-reaching agendas this and far-reaching that, and they're not giving any sort of um, you know, clearance or any sort of uh, coverage to individuals that don't want to get an abortion. Well, uh, according to this article, they're funding these groups at the tune of $26 million. These are for crisis pregnancy centers. These are for individuals and individual groups that give women an alternative to what Planned Parenthood offers, 
which is just abortion, 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 abortion. So why are Christian groups with conservative ideologies getting the money? Because they're the ones that are providing the services. I don't think a bunch of progressive groups across the state are all of a sudden running their crisis pregnancy centers. I haven't seen all of these progressive groups coming out and saying that they're opening pro-life clinics to support life. Nope, that hasn't happened at all. So it's, this, is a, this is manufactured outrage. Back to Jennifer Copeland, the executive director of this group, which they know it supports progressive causes. How did these particular organizations and churches and schools get selected out of, the, out of all of the potential organizations, churches, and schools in North Carolina to receive the funding? Even before that, I've had a hard time with taxpayer dollars supporting particular religious agendas. That's not a religious agenda. Part of the 13-week abortion restriction that was put in place in North Carolina was that they would fund crisis, crisis, uh, pregnancy crisis centers and fund other sorts of services to give young women an opportunity to go forward with their pregnancy and provide them support. And that is exactly what they're doing, and now they're being demonized by the News and Observer and this Jennifer Copeland lady. So what does the state law say? Because the headline of this article is separation of church and state, question mark. Religious groups get $26 million in North Carolina taxpayer money. Faith-based groups are generally prohibited from using federal funds for religious activities like worship. But things are murkier with state, uh, state funding. The state constitution does not expressly prohibit the use of state funds for religious purposes, but does require that government spending be used for public purposes only. Okay. Well, it sounds like that that's exactly what they're going to do. I, from anything that I have read and that I've gathered, there's no indication here that this money that is being given to these religious organizations is being used for their Sunday services or being used to provide food for their next barbecue or cookout. No, this money is being used to give women an alternative to what the Democrats want, which is just, oh, yeah, you got pregnant. Uh, Well, just abort the baby. Who cares? It's not really a human life. Yeah, it's not a big deal. Just uh, come into your local Planned Parenthood and and we'll be good to go. The state is providing an alternative to that. And of course, that is very outraging here to the News and Observer and outraging to progressive organizations. I'll get into some more details on this story coming up. You can be part of the program this morning by calling or texting in. Our studio hotline is 910-763-4000. Welcome back to Wilmington's Morning News. 910-763-4000 is our phone number. We are covering a story this morning that ran in the Sunday edition of the Raleigh News and Observer, the bastion of truth and honesty here. I say that uh, with extreme sarcasm in North Carolina. They're outraged that $26 million worth of state funding is going to 
churches and religious organizations that provide, as they describe, anti-abortion crisis pregnancy centers, a.k.a. pro-life, giving, you know, new mothers the opportunity and giving them and telling them that there is choice, right? Because they've been told that, oh, if you get pregnant and you didn't want to be, abortion is the only solution to your problem. They're providing an alternative viewpoint to that. So they're very frustrated that this money is going to these organizations. The budget, back to the article, the budget, which was passed by the Republican-controlled General Assembly last month after delays of negotiation, thanks for that inclusion, does include language saying that, quote, directed grants to nonprofit organizations, which churches are, are for non-religious purposes only. So then what's the issue? Right, the concern is that this money is being used for churches, it's, it's, but the, the budget very clearly indicates that that's not allowed. Non-religious purposes only. Non-religious, that is directly from the 640-some-odd page budget. The budget appears to only include money for Christian religious organizations and lacks funding for any Jewish, Muslim, or Buddhist groups. Most of these groups, however, purport to serve anyone regardless of their religion. Are there a vast, and maybe there is, are there a vast a, a group of Jewish, Muslim, and Buddhist organizations that are providing pro-life alternatives and opportunities? I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. Tammy Fitzgerald, who has been on the show a couple of times, they note her as the executive director of the conservative North Carolina Values Coalition. God forbid they just report what her title is without having to inject politics into it. She says, Christian-based organizations are fulfilling needs for the most desperate in our community and are able to provide personal attention with a compassionate approach unlike government-run services. Amen to that, Tammy. She continues to say groups who objected to this funding want the state to discriminate against religious groups simply because of their faith. And she is spot on about that as well. In 2017, the United States Supreme Court sided with a church in Missouri that was denied public funding for being a religious organization. In a 7-2 decision, the court ruled that this, violate, that this violated the First Amendment and the state could not exclude churches from aid programs so long as the programs are neutral and secular. Well, it turns out uh, anybody can get pregnant, at least if you're a woman. Turns out it doesn't really matter what your skin color is, what your religion is, what your background is. Women, I know this is a probably a pretty complicated topic for some people to digest. Women can get pregnant. It really doesn't matter where, what they identify as in terms of their religion. And these groups will provide those sorts of services to anybody, regardless of their religious affiliation. Nearly $19 million in the state budget goes to crisis pregnancy centers, groups that generally, dis listen to this verbiage, groups that generally dissuade women from having abortions and counsel women on alternatives for dealing with unplanned pregnancies. Dissuade women? I mean, this is just the most pathetic excuse for journalism. 
The American Civil Liberties Union of North Carolina, the ACLU, said, quote, these so-called pregnancy centers are not health care providers. They're anti-abortion organizations. Uh, I guess they should be damned for supporting life. Because, you know, the ACLU, the the American Civil Liberties Union, doesn't support life. Neither do Democrats, including Josh Stein. These organizations provide medically inaccurate information to prevent people from making informed decisions about their health. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they do. By the way, pregnancy crisis centers or crisis pregnancy centers, in their name, they don't claim to be healthcare providers. They're providing counseling. They're providing services. They're providing alternative viewpoints. And we know how much the Democrats hate alternative viewpoints. God forbid. The Carolina Pregnancy Care Foundation, an umbrella organization overseeing crisis pregnancy centers across the state, received $12.5 million in the budget, the most of any organization. They also use the name LifeLink Carolina, and they will use that money to dole out grants to individual crisis pregnancy centers. Bobby Meyer, the state director of LifeLink, said all pregnancy centers receiving funding from her organization are Christian faith-based organizations because it turns out nobody else is providing these services. But she said her organization is careful to separate state funds from centers' religious purchases. She said every crisis pregnancy center that receives funding through her organization signs a memorandum stating that they only use that money for non-religious purposes like ultrasound equipments and other pieces of equipment. Meyer said she also submits quarterly and annual reports to state regulators that document how the centers use funds. That sounds like complete and total transparency. She said, we take it quite seriously and adhere to it. So again, what's the, what's the concern here? What's the big gripe? What's the outrage? Well, I don't, it seems like these groups are getting the money. They're documenting the money. They're only using it for the things that they're supposed to be used for. What's the, what's the outrage? Why was this right on the homepage of the News and Observer's website on Sunday? That doesn't even sound like there's a story here. LifeLink Carolina came under fire in 2018 after Rewire News, a reproductive health news outlet, reported that its centers improperly used federal funds for religious materials, including DVDs. Wow. Wow. The North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services wrote in a statement to Rewire News at the time, these expenses may may not have, could not have, could potentially could have not been approved if the spending was not consistent with federal law. That was it. And then, then that's where it all stopped. Another crisis pregnancy center known as the Human Coalition got $3 million in this year's budget as well. So more ridiculous outrage from uh, Democrat media across the state. Reading through this story, there's really not a whole lot to it at all. Just more uh, outrage and fear. Afford Anything is a podcast that teaches you how to be smart with your money. As a small business, you don't have the resources to pay the level of overhead and for the level of services that a Fortune 
Fortune 500 company could afford. So I certainly understand why, if you want to offer benefits, the providers of that, that that fee is going to be higher because there's more account management per employee. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Getting you closer to the big stories. This is Wilmington's Morning News with Nick Craig, 107.9 and 980 The Way. Welcome back to Wilmington's Morning News. It's a pleasure to have you here this morning. 910-763-4000 is our studio hotline where you can call or text and get your comments in on the airwaves this morning. We've talked a little bit about this over the last couple of weeks, and it was a pretty interesting conversation surrounding maps here in North Carolina. With the budget process taking so long earlier this summer, it really put a tight time constraint on North Carolina lawmakers to get maps out. We did get draft copies of those maps last week, and now hearings are taking place in the North Carolina House and Senate where they are going through some of these details. It's a pleasure to be joined on the airwaves this morning by Jim Sterling. He is a researcher over at the John Locke Foundation, and he's going to talk a little bit about the statewide maps and then hone in on some things going on here locally this morning. Jim, uh, great to uh, have you on the air Tell us a little bit about a, a thing that you guys do over at the lock known as the CPI, and it is not the Consumer Price Index. <laughs> Nothing so interesting, but obviously just as important when it comes to North Carolina elections. Nick, I appreciate being on. So what the CPI is, uh, is our calculations for North Carolina maps, both the congressional uh, as a new product, as well as our, what we've done traditionally, which is the legislative maps. Most folks kind of focus on the congressional maps. You see a lot of things like Cook Parson Index, uh, which we kind of model ours off of for the legislative product. So there are a couple different ways to look at a CPI or a partisan or excuse me, a partisan index, which is the deviation between the two parties, two major parties, Democrat and Republican, and the look at the percentage from above 50. What we opt to do is instead look at it from above 50%. So our numbers are a little bit, are a little bit less severe as uh, you would look at other partisan indexes. But we focus more locally on the legislative races and kind of give people an idea of where they lean. Before we get into the North Carolina House and Senate races, there's some pretty big changes coming to the congressional maps here in North Carolina. The maps that were used in the last election cycle were used just for that. Maps have been redrawn, and there's some big changes and some funky-looking districts coming for the uh, House representatives in Washington, D.C. Is that the case? Yes. So the maps obviously got moved because they were interim maps based on the court special masters. So these were always planned to get redrawn. Uh, Court-imposed maps always get redrawn at the next go-around or the next available time by the legislatures. So the maps, I believe, for your area in particular, kind of fall within some norm. Only made a couple modifications after the amendments that were proposed yesterday. But we are shifting from a 7-7 district to what is looked at as a 10-3-1 or a 10 Republican, three Democrat, and one toss-up seat. When you talk about this, there's a lot of conversation online, uh, Jim, as, as this process has gone on. 
that these maps should be 50-50. North Carolina has got their largest voting block is unaffiliated. There's a pretty equal amount of Republicans and Democrats. That means that the map should be seven Republicans, seven Democrats. Can you explain a little bit about this process and why full split maps really don't make sense based on how our state is made up? So, yes, I'm more than willing to on that. So if we want to look at even the latest court case, the uh, Harper decision, when we looked at the plaintiff's own experts, they found that the most likely results actually end up being more like a 9-5, with 7-7 only happening about 5% of the time and a 10-4 being roughly around the same. Democrats are very much condensed within areas like Charlotte, Mecklenburg, Buncombe County, more of these urban areas. So when we start looking at the state as a whole, it's a little bit different. Mostly those areas are Republican. I believe in 2020, 80 out of 100 counties went Republican. So in order to create that kind of 7-7 map, you end up having to tendril out uh, and, frankly, gerrymander a lot of these districts out of these urban areas to create Democrat-leaning district or Democrat-leaning districts in these rural communities. So the most likely result ends up favoring Republicans, and the plaintiffs even knew that when going into this. So from what, I, from what I'm hearing from you and from what I understand about this process, I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination. For this 7-7, this equal split, which, again, the state is not – voter registration is not a good indication of, of where this all falls. You'd have to do something like draw three districts that carve up different pieces of Wake County and Mecklenburg County and expand those out into rural areas to offset the large Democrat populations – that are in those areas. And uh, you just used a term that is always thrown around. That sounds like, Jim, that would be gerrymandering. You'd be gerrymandering people in and out of different districts just to make up a partisan basis. Right. And that term gets a little overused, I'll be quite frank. Uh, I've seen people call the 11th, which is basically a straight down the line of the western part of the state, a gerrymander, which, no, it, it's frankly not. It's been around that way for a long time. And to carve it out, uh, to make a partisan or a more left-leaning area or anything of that nature or competitive area would be a gerrymander because you're trying to make this district more partisan, uh, more partisanly favorable to one party or another, which is the manipulation of maps. That's the original definition of gerrymandering. Uh, yes, and we know how the original definition of words tend to um... – uh, how do I put this, Jim? Uh, they tend to change <laughs> over time, depending on the point that you're trying to make. So when we look at these these new, uh, again, we're talking about the U.S. House right now. We're not talking about North Carolina House. When you look at these new U.S. House maps, uh, there's two different proposed versions that were brought forward by the General Assembly. That One is known as CBP5, the other known as CCJ1. What are the differences between those two maps, and have lawmakers given a direction as to which one they're going to go with? Yes, they actually have. So the CBP map was an 11-3 map that kind of morphed. The big kind of change to it was the first district, which instead of covering the coast up into the northern reaches along the border of Virginia, now moves slightly more to the uh, left of North Carolina and encompasses parts of Durham, overtaking the northern uh, counties above Wake. So that would have been the modification, but they have opted not to go with that map and instead go with the other map you described, which 
we talked about earlier being that 1031 map. That has been modified slightly after the amendments yesterday, but still remains at 1031. So here for uh, folks in southeastern North Carolina, we would continue to be in the 7th Congressional District. Congressman David Rouser is our representative, and the 7 as drawn right now would include Onslow, Pender, New Hanover, Brunswick, Columbus, Bladen, and parts of Robeson County, which is a change from what the 7 had looked like in the past. It went all the way up to Johnston County, Jim, and uh, it's a little bit different now, more locally fixated on southeastern North Carolina, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. A lot of the issues that we deal with in Brunswick, New Hanover, and Pender uh, are, are, are tend to be pretty similar as a, we're coastal communities. Same thing up in Onslow. Um, so that, to me, seems like it's a pretty good thing for us. Right. The map didn't really modify too much. Uh, you guys will still maintain Cumberland from the 2022 map. Uh, I think it's a little bit less than that after the amendment, but They modified slightly the third and the seventh yesterday. So you now maintain Cumberland as before you didn't. And the change to Sampson, you slightly take into that northeastern corridor of Sampson County with only taking a partial of Robeson now. So it's a lot more compact than the original map they proposed was because the third kind of went and dipped into Cumberland. And you guys took a little bit uh, more of Robeson and Onslow, I believe. Now, when you look at these maps, and somebody might look at this, and if they don't know what they're, and, and I'm not, I'm not shaming or faulting anybody, but Jim, you look at this map and you see all these little rough edges and boundaries and barriers, and somebody might say, "Well, what the hell is this? Why, why are certain counties split in half? What is the reason that they have to carve these districts around? What is the basis of that that they're using?" So, to put it simply. It's population. North Carolina's population has to be a plus or minus one, not percent, person. There is no safe harbor for congressional districts. And that ends up making some jagged and necessary splits in the precincts. Uh, Some of the other changes that make it kind of jagged can be just simply how the precincts are set up. Uh, Certain ones are just not pretty. So you don't have those clean edges uh, just because how the maps have to be designed to limit VTD splits or uh, these precincts, as more colloquially known. So the popul- the reason you're seeing a lot of this is because of population. That's why when you look at Wake County, you see three congressional districts in Wake County. Uh, same thing in Mecklenburg County as well. That's based on population? Yes. So all these districts have to be within a one, one point. I believe it's seven or one person. I believe it needs to be 745,000-some-odd. Uh, people that have to be in the district. So for the reasons that you see three counties, or excuse me, three different districts within um, Wake and Mech, that's because of a rule that's been in place that wasn't really followed by the interim maps, which is keeping a district, if it can be maintained within a county based on its population, within that county. So if they have more than that 746,000, The rules normally say that you should probably keep a district in that county. However, when we had the 2022 maps, they split Mecklenburg uh, in half and didn't keep anything solidly within that county, opting to grab into Gaston and split Charlotte in half. 
It looks uh, pretty in some areas, not pretty in others. And again, that comes mainly down to populations and where you would expect those to take place are in our big population centers like Wake County and in Mecklenburg County. We're joined this morning getting the uh, 411 rundown from Jim Sterling over at the John Locke Foundation about these maps. Jim, if you can hang on the line for me, I got to grab a quick break. After that, I want to talk about the North Carolina House and Senate maps. There is some significant changes in the North Carolina House maps here in southeastern North Carolina. We'll have those details with Jim Sterling after this. You're listening to Nick Craig and Wilmington's Morning News. Jim Sterling is our guest this morning. He of the John Locke Foundation as we talk about district redistricting and North Carolina maps for the United States House of Representatives and, of course, the North Carolina House and Senate. Jim, turning our attention to North Carolina, the House and the Senate specifically, not seeing a lot of movement on the Senate side here in southeastern North Carolina, but some pretty big changes to the North Carolina house maps, specifically here in New Hanover County. What are you seeing on that? So going over kind of briefly what the house modifications are, it it slightly changes how the setup is uh, based on kind of the overall look at it. So originally they were talking about a 58, 56 with six toss-ups. Now we're looking more close closely aligned with a 69483 and for New Hanover in specific uh, there's a couple modifications to some of y'all central districts within uh, the Wilmington area I believe 19 or excuse me let me pull up my map here just so I can have my little cheat sheet to better articulate this 18 and 20 got a little bit of a modification 18 is now more of the western and more centralized within Wilmington and 20 now covers the northern section, as well as going over east to the coast. So these districts kind of changed based on that. Uh, 18 used to be a D plus 6. Now it's sitting at a much more solid D plus 13. Uh, a D plus 6 for us is a likely Democrat seat, and a D13 is a very safe seat. Uh, plus 10 is considered safe on our scale. And when we look at this map specifically for folks listening to the, this morning that used to be in uh, District 18, I fall into this category Uh, You are now part of District 20. This includes areas north of the city of Wilmington around the MLK Parkway north. That's up towards Wrightsboro, the North Chase area, Gordon Road to the north in the Murraysville area. All of that used to be under District 18, which was still a a very heavily Democrat district. You noted there a D plus six District 20, which currently is served by Representative Ted Davis, uh, picks up a lot more of the more rural parts if there's any left here of New Hanover County makes uh, 20 and 19 much more solid uh, Republican districts. And same thing with District 18, a much more solid Democrat district. So I don't think we'll see a a big power change here, Jim, as the Democrats will be able to continue to hold 18. But 20 and 19 are picking up some uh, pretty different precincts in some pretty different areas of town. That's right. So 19 is y'all split district with uh, Brunswick County. Since y'all are kind of clustered in together based on the Stevenson criteria, you have to be paired up with Brunswick. Um, There's no other option for the House. So that district hasn't really moved in the CPI. It's still an R plus 10. It's just moving from, I believe, more of a western lean on there, just butting up underneath Wilmington more, and now is kind of covering both the coast on there. 
Yeah, and that's big uh, for and that's big for Representative Charlie Miller, who represents District 19, serving those beach communities not only in Brunswick County but also in New Hanover County. You look at places like you know Oak Island and Southport; they've got some pretty similar concerns to the folks over in Caroline and Curie Beach, and to keep them all in that same district, Jim, it makes a lot of sense. the The things that they struggle with and their issues for small beach towns tend to be the same, whether you're in Brunswick or in New Hanover County. Well, community of interest is kind of the main point of drawing maps. I mean, at the end of the day, a representative is someone who is supposed to be representing, well, frankly, a community of interest, uh, not just a partisan or a political party. So the more condensed, the more uh, community, more of a excuse on the community of interest or more reasoning behind the community of interest, it honestly makes for better maps, in my opinion. Uh, there are a couple ones in these that make me a little bit questionable on it, but that uh, move within 19 and 18 seems more reasonable on the House side. Now, the big change for you guys is District 20. District 20 was the one of the close ones we were watching for the House to see if there would be a supermajority. Uh, that moved from a D plus one to an R plus four, which means it goes from a toss-up district to a lean Republican seat. I believe that's Ted Davis's seat. In yes, sir. 20th, if I recall correctly. So that is a pretty big watch. We're still going to be looking at that because that. A lean district can be flipped. It's more difficult with a as it moves further on, but it still is a flippable district. It's just going to be one that has to be put a little bit more effort in from Democrats to be able to change that that seat. And we saw in the last election, even with it being a D plus one, a really tough race there between Ted Davis and Amy Block Deloche. Ted Davis, the victor in that, and one of those important votes. To the, that went, uh, that ended up leading to the eventual House majority once Trisha Cotham switched her party affiliation over. Let's turn it over to uh, the state Senate. You've got State Senator Michael Lee here in New Hanover County, Bill Rabin, the rules chair over in Brunswick. Any significant changes to those maps, Jim? Yeah, so there's a couple changes here. So the main one that's been talked about a lot is the change to the 7th, which is now a slightly higher north than it was previously. So Brunswick and uh, Caber- or excuse me, Columbus, excuse me on that, uh, those are always going to have to be grouped together. So that district doesn't modify. The only question is where does it lean into New Hanover for population? Uh, before it was a little bit further south, only cussing the south- southern part of Wilmington, I believe, and now it cuts into central Wilmington. So that takes a couple of Democrat precincts out of the map and makes the 7th a little bit more Republican-friendly, but not by much. It's a difference of about two points. For the 7th, it moves from an R plus 0 to an R plus 2, and the 8th moves from an R plus 10 to an R plus 7. Still a very competitive Senate district there. We've seen a couple of very contentious races in the past years against uh, State Senator Michael Lee. Jim Sterling is our guest this morning. He's over at the John Locke Foundation. Uh, Jim, obviously we're here on the radio. Folks might want to go take a look at some of these maps real quick. Where do they do that? Uh, so over at the John Locke Foundation, these are the we've covered the congressional and the legislative maps. They're in two separate articles. But you can find it under our center, the Center for Public Integrity, over at the John Locke Foundation, spelled J-O-L-J-O-H-N-L-O-C-K-E dot org. Jim, thank you so much for the time. Greatly appreciated. Your insight is uh, absolutely remarkable. Looking forward to catching up with you again soon. All right. Thank you, Nick. Absolutely. My pleasure. Jim Sterling there from the John Locke Foundation. We'll put a link to this up on our social media channels as well at 107.9 and 980 The Wave. Quick bottom of the hour news break. More Wilmington's morning news coming up. It's a... 
Hey, everybody. This is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day. Plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen. 36. Welcome back to Wilmington's Morning News. 910-763-4000 is our studio hotline where you can call or text and get your comments in on the air this morning. Did you see this story out of the West Coast? An off-duty Alaska airline pilot has now been charged with 83 counts of attempted murder. Now, it's not what you think, but he's being charged with 83 counts of attempted murder after he allegedly tried to turn off the plane engines mid-flight. So this off-duty pilot, his name is Joseph Emerson. He's 44 years old. He apparently had a, thank God he wasn't flying the plane. He had a mental breakdown and tried to turn off the engines on a San Francisco-bound Alaskan Airlines flight. He tried activating the jet's fire suppression system mid-flight while sitting in the cockpit or sitting in the jump seat a near catastrophic catastrophic maneuver that could have left the airline literally plummeting into the ground. And now he is facing 83 counts of attempted murder. According to the New York Post article, if he was successful, he would have immediately cut the fuel to the engines. When pulled, a valve in the wing closes to shut off fuel to the engines. Again, it's a fire suppression system. If you've got your mid-flight and you've got an engine that catches on fire, you can pull this. It shuts off the fuel and it exhausts the fire so that your the plane doesn't completely disintegrate. According to a passenger on or according to the crew after they are pulled some residual uh, fuel remains in line and the quick reaction of our crew to reset the handles restored fuel and presented fuel starvation of those engines if you've ever used like a two-stroke generator or something like that you know you can turn the little fuel knob on and off and it will run for a couple more seconds and then you'll hear it start to choke because it's Choking, there's not enough gas, and it's you're starving the engine of fuel. That obviously causes the engine to eventually shut down. So this guy, Joseph Emerson, he was in the jump seat. He was off duty. So there were two other pilots that were actually flying the plane. And this is a pretty common thing as I was reading about this last night. When pilots need to get from different destinations, like if he, for example, this Joseph Emmer guy was supposed to be the pilot out of a San Francisco flight, he would sit in the cockpit in this kind of back seat known as the jump seat to get from different destinations. It's how they can move pilots around without them taking up seats on the airline itself. According to passenger Aubrey Gallivello, she told ABC News the crew had alerted them about a medical emergency in the cockpit before they went and took an emergency landing. Gallivello said the flight attendant got back on the speaker and said plain and simple, he had a mental breakdown. We need to get him off the plane immediately. Sources close to the investigation say they don't believe his actions were based on any sort of ideology. So we're not looking at any sort of terror attack here you're talking about 
a severely mentally ill guy that uh, is a is a pilot and uh, tried to literally sink a plane over the weekend. Joseph Suku, a former FBI intelligence officer, told the New York Post that federal investigators would probe Emerson's personal life. He said they're going to unpack and pack his personal life. They're going to go through his, through his social media, all of his computers, his phone, everything. The flight's captain and first officer managed to subdue Emerson, who was off-duty but authorized to sit in the cockpit because he was an employee of the airline. The flight, which was flight 2059, was being operated by Horizon Air, a regional carrier owned by Alaskan Airlines. It took off from Everett, Washington shortly before 5.30 p.m. on Sunday. An Alaskan Airlines spokesperson told the New York Post, the jump seat occupant unsuccessfully attempted to disrupt the operation of the engine. Crews were able to secure the aircraft without incident. The flight was forced to make an emergency diversion to Portland International Airport, where the suspect was taken into custody by Portland police. No injuries were reported as due to the incident. Emerson was booked on a litany of charges, including 83 counts of attempted murder in the first degree, 83 counts of reckless endangering another person, and one count of endangering an aircraft in the first degree. That's according to a county district attorney. I Now, obviously, uh, I'm sure the defense on this is going to be to try and plead that this guy is obviously not mentally stable and, and his actions would indicate that's the case. However, uh, these charges, I mean, this guy will, if, if he's convicted of even half of these charges, uh, he'll spend five lifetimes in prison. 83 counts of attempted first-degree murder? Uh, that's insane. An FAA spokesperson said that the agency was engaged with both Alaska and Horizon Airlines and, quote, is supporting investigations into Sunday evening's incident, but declined to comment any further. Emerson, as you can imagine, is currently in custody in a detention center in Portland, Oregon, where he is awaiting arraignment. The district attorney's office said investigation, the investigation on this matter is still active and is being coordinated between local, state, and federal agencies. And there's going to be a lot of players in this, as you can imagine. You're dealing with the FAA. You're dealing with the uh, NTSB. You're dealing with the multiple different companies. There are so many different facets here. The Airline Pilots Association International praised the flight crew for their swift actions in stopping Emerson before the incident became a tragedy. The association called the airline pilot profession, quote, one of the most highly vetted and scrutinized careers, noting that pilots are continuously evaluated through their careers through training and medical exams, as you would hope. An FAA pilot database shows Emerson is listed as a certified pilot who received a medical clearance just last month. Aviators are expected to self-report any mental health conditions, according to two U.S. pilots. In a statement, the Portland office of the FBI said that they were investigating the incident as well and can ensure the traveling public that there is no continued threat related to this incident. Wow. What a, uh, what a wild story. I heard an uh, interview with somebody this morning on television who said that Fortunately, the crew handled this in such a professional way that nobody really had any idea what had happened or what was going on. 
There was not mass panic and pandemonium on the flight. They said, hey, there's a medical emergency in the cockpit. The plane wasn't bumpy. The, it wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't shifting elevations dramatically or rapidly. They didn't have to uh, go through anything crazy on that flight. Um, they really didn't even know what was going on until they landed and saw the uh, FBI come on there and, and arrest this, this uh, off-duty pilot, but a pilot for Alaskan Airlines. So that is, uh, that's the deal. That's the story. I am uh, very curious to continue to see what comes of this. Uh, Kevin is texting in this morning and saying they don't analyze them for mental health, only self-report. And, that, and that's, uh, that's kind of a, a, t- a tough thing to, to do. You know, mental health analysis is, it, it, I think many would argue, is a pretty subjective thing. You've got somebody that, you know, who knows what they're going through. Um, it's, pretty, it's a pretty crazy situation uh, that unfolded over there. Um, and I guess we'll uh, wait and see what comes of it and what happens with that now as uh, this individual, again, 44-year-old Joseph David Emerson is in uh, custody this morning facing 83 counts of attempted murder. Well, early voting is open once again across southeastern North Carolina. If you are a a resident of New Hanover, Brunswick, or Pender counties and live in one of those counties' municipalities, you can vote. Election Day is today, and early voting is at the Northeast Public Library here in New Hanover County. That's 1241 Military Cutoff Road. That's open until 5 p.m. tonight. In Brunswick County, you can vote at the Cooperative Extension Building. That's at 25 Referendum Drive, Building N in Bolivia. That's also open until 5 p.m. And in Pender County, at the Pender County Cooperative Extension Office, that's at 801 South Walker Street in Bergaw. Early voting is open there as well. We will take a look at the early voting totals now that we are three days into early voting across southeastern North Carolina. We'll let you know some of the party affiliations and party breakdowns for the uh, municipal elections thus far coming up after a quick commercial break. We'll also take a look at your Tuesday forecast and recap some news from across the state and across the nation after this. We've got open phone lines as well at 910-763-4000. It's Nick Craig in Wilmington's Morning News on 107.9 and 980 The Wave. Starting to warm up out at the Wilmington International Airport. 46 degrees down there, up uh, up there, 51 down in Oak Island this morning. Looks to be a beautiful Tuesday across southeastern North Carolina. 75 degrees is your high temperature call. Dry, sunny, no chance of any showers or storms. Going to be a nice uh, warm one here as uh, we approach and get deeper into the month of October. So as I mentioned, early voting is open once again today. This will be the fourth day of early voting across southeastern North Carolina. And we've got some voter statistics to pass along to you from New Hanover and Brunswick County. We'll try to do this uh, as time permits, uh, day in and day out, just quickly run over some of these totals. In New Hanover County, there have been 714 votes cast thus far. Those elections and municipalities include the city of Wilmington, the largest, of course, Wrightsville, Carolina, and Curie Beach, 714 thus far. The voter breakdown in those areas, at least for the county as a whole, 284 Democrats casting ballots so far, 221 unaffiliated voters, that's our largest voting block, casting ballots thus far, and 209 Republicans. So you've got 
unaffiliated and Republicans pretty close. Democrats uh, slightly ahead, which when you look at the makeup and the partisan breakdown of the city of Wilmington, that is uh, what would what at least what you would expect as of uh, right now. 253 individuals voting yesterday in the municipal elections. You'll be able to do that again until five o'clock today. Over in Brunswick County, we do not have party breakdown as of yet. I'm not sure if they're going to be promoting or publishing uh, any of that information, but there have been 381 votes cast over in Brunswick County during one-stop early voting, 43 total votes by absentee mail, and there is a plethora of municipalities, over a dozen that are voting in elections this go-round in Brunswick County, still trying to track down some of those numbers from Pender County as well. Well, here's a pretty wild story here in the city of Wilmington. It happened yesterday. A vehicle struck a pedestrian near the Shell Station downtown. That's near North 3rd Street. But the charges are not going against the driver of the vehicle. The pedestrian was struck near that Shell Station Monday afternoon, according to the Wilmington Police Department. According to their announcement, the pedestrian received what appeared to be serious, but fortunately non-critical injuries and charges are expected against the pedestrian after he or she we don't know their um we don't know their gender yet allegedly ran quote this is a direct quote ran out into traffic when they did not have the cross sign so somebody ran out into traffic or was struck by a vehicle and that driver is not facing any charges it is expected that the pedestrian will this is still a developing situation and we await more information from wpd on that Well, taking a look to Washington, D.C. this morning, House Republicans will be back in the next five minutes once again to try and figure out who should be the next speaker of the United States House of Representatives. GOP lawmakers will be gathering this morning at 9 a.m. once again to begin conducting votes via anonymous secret ballot. There are nine total Republicans that are in the speaker's race right now. Majority Whip Tom Emmer from Minnesota, GOP Conference Chair Mike Johnson from Louisiana, GOP Policy Committee Chair Gary Palmer from Alabama, Republican Study Committee Chair Kevin Hearn from Oklahoma, Representative Byron Donalds from Florida, Representative Jack Burgum from Michigan, Representative Austin Scott from Georgia, Representative Pete Sessions from Texas, and Representative Dan Mauser from Pennsylvania. Those are the nine individuals. You've probably heard of a couple of them, Tom Emmer, Mike Johnson, um, Kevin Hearn, maybe Byron Donalds, but some of the others, unless you're super familiar with the breakup of the U.S. House, you probably have not heard of some of those names. And those nine candidates are the ones that are seeking GOP conference consensus for them to make their way to the full floor of the House for a vote. Now, what's going to happen today? And there was last night, there was a candidate form that took place where GOP lawmakers had uh, the opportunity to hear from those nine candidates. What's going to take place today is you'll start off with the first round of voting. And for that, you'll have a bunch of individuals that are um, uh, the nine individuals that will be on the first ballot. 
it's all in all likelihood nobody will get a majority of the conference. So for the second vote, the lowest vote getter will drop off that list. That lowest person will be withdrawn from the race. Then there'll be eight and then seven, six, until somebody gets a majority of the conference. Once that happens, well, then it is to the full floor for a vote on the House floor. But, you know, reading through this list of names, yeah, I'm sure these are all good guys, and I'm sure some of them would be good House speakers. But looking at this list, I'm not seeing anybody. Maybe the only person that I could see maybe being Tom Emmer that has a chance of getting 217 votes, right? That's the number that needs to be met. That's the number that needs to be garnered for the next person to become the House Speaker. 215 isn't going to do it. 200 isn't going to do it. 217 is the number. And unless there's a big change, unless there's a big uh, switcheroo on the Hakeem Jeffries Democrat side of the aisle, the only way this is going to happen is with complete and total Republican concurrence. Now, a couple of people can drop off, but 217 is the number. And I'm not sure that any of these nine individuals are going to be able to get to that. So I would assume, you know what they say about assumptions, but I will assume that we'll get somebody that comes out of consensus today. There's going to be a bunch of these secret ballot votes. I assume they're going to be trying to get this done as quickly as possible. And that means that one of these names very well could come forward as a vote as early as maybe Wednesday or Thursday. Where we sit right now, it has been 21 days, three full weeks since Kevin McCarthy was ousted by a group of eight Republicans as the House Speaker, alongside every single Democrat voting against him. The House has been in complete and total gridlock since. And from everything that I'm looking at, I just don't see any of these guys getting there. So that reignites the conversation over Patrick McHenry representative from the central and western half of North Carolina. He is currently the speaker pro temp. And is there an attempt and is there a push to give him some temporary powers to conduct some business of the House? Why might that be relevant? Well, November 17th, the government is shutting down. There was a 45-day extension that was agreed to by Kevin McCarthy to keep the government open. This last three weeks would have been the perfect time for Republicans to fight and battle for their causes and issues. Instead, they've spent it inside of committee rooms complaining and being, being unable to come to, towards any sort of consensus. You've got just a few weeks until November 17th. Three weeks from Friday. And then the government shut down. So we'll track this today. If there's any uh, breaking news, we will pass it to you on our social media channels on Facebook and X at 107.9 and 980 The Wave. That's going to do it for a Tuesday edition of Wilmington's Morning News. We're back tomorrow morning, 6 to 9 a.m. Have a great Tuesday. Are you ready for hard-hitting observations? Reality remains reality no matter how hard you try to ignore it. The Ben Shapiro Show brings you all the news you need to know in America today. Again, I'm all here for the pop culture, people dating each other for the press. Ben breaks down the culture and never gives an inch. 
every so often, and by every so often, I mean literally every 27 seconds so the producer gets fired. The Ben Shapiro Show on YouTube or wherever you listen. 